Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Welcome to Chat with Traders podcast. This is episode 231, and I have the great pleasure of introducing to you another heavy hitter, James Chen. James is an equities trader and a partner at Sydney-based fund Blue Lake Partners. It's probably a safe bet to assume that this is your first time hearing of James as he's a fairly private person. So let me put it like this. There are good traders, there are great traders, and then there is James. He operates on an entirely different level to most. For well over a decade now, James has been discovering edges and developing trades that I know the typical trader would consider as rather obscure. And for that reason, I think you and I were quite fortunate to have James on the record here, able to learn a bit about how his brain ticks. Which starts with James telling how he cut his teeth trading retail, then how he exploited a loophole in an ASX trading competition, won and got hired. We then discussed trades surrounding index rebalances and dual listed stocks, otherwise known as ADRs including specific examples too. Next, James imparts with comprehensive thoughts on finding alpha. Then last thing, James mentions that he's actually looking to hire someone for a US support trader role. If you're interested to find out more, I've included a link to the application form in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com slash 231. And for some reason... I don't know why, at the end, I forgot to ask James to share his Twitter handle, as I usually ask every guest. Should you wish to follow James on Twitter, his handle is at skyquake underscore one. Now I've done enough talking, here is special guest James Chen. We won't spend too much time here, but uh, obviously because there's plenty of other things that I want to get into with you. Uh, but I think it's good to get some perspective on where you did begin. So I think 
your origins as a trader was uh, you started trading a personal account in university. Yep. You know, how did you go then? Were you a gun trader from the outset? Did you have a bit of a knack for this naturally? Um, you know, what sort of things were you doing in those early days? Uh, I, I certainly thought I did. <laughs> it was, I think, 04 or 05. It was like a commodities bull market. I do distinctly recall BHP would go up every day and I would buy um, warrants in the thing. Warrants are just basically um, options for retail. And commodities are generally, um, they're less mean reverting. They have a lot of momentum. So every day you feel like a genius, right? And the thing goes up every day. And then because I was leveraged via warrants, um, I felt like I was doing the right thing. Like every day the warrants go up by like 40% or something. And I roll into um, more leverage warrants. And then those will go up 40% the next day. I was dealing with small amounts of capital, but like it felt really good thinking, wow, look at these losers making 20% a year <laughs> when I can make 40% a day. And I think like there was like a random pullback and then everything went to zero. I was like, oh, okay. There's some nuance to this thing. But um, yeah, that was how I uh, cut my teeth on the um, on retail trading and getting into the market. And this is, you know, while I was learning about the CAPM, doing finance, learning about how to value an option, and other interesting courses like uh, like when we're trying to teach us compound compound interest in um, economics 101, I was thinking, what the hell is going on here? So you were at university. Like, what were you studying? What was the original plan? Didn't really much have an original plan. I was doing a commerce slash law double degree. Didn't really enjoy the law part. I always enjoyed the finance, math side a bit more. Yeah, but as I said back then, like just kids, that had no idea what was going, what was going on, what I wanted to do. Just wanted, um, yeah, crave the, uh, crave the excitement. And that obviously led you into uh, joining a prop trading firm. Yep. I think this was maybe a couple years later um, during the GFC. What was that like? So I joined Propex as part of their trainee group um, in 2008, right during the heat of the GFC. I think I was trading all kinds of derivatives, um, but scalping on the ladder um, it was quite fun um, because, like, instead of you know, instead of learning how to scout properly, um, the market environment rewarded um, like rewarded a different kind of trading. Like if you held onto a position and the, the market would have a big move, you make, like scalping wasn't rewarded. You were the, therefore the really big moves. Um, and I guess everyone in that, um, in the area was doing really, really well because you're trying to make two or three ticks normally, but then you have these 50, 60 point moves in a straight line because a fund needed to get out or needed to get in. It was a very interesting experience. You make it sound like there was kind of, um, I don't know if incentive is the right word, but you were kind of, you were ideally there to be a scalper, but yeah, you gravitated yeah. more towards the holding on for those those bigger moves at the time. Yeah. It was also, um, I guess, lazier. Rather than scalping and reading a book, you just buy a, set, a two-point stop or something and then hope it goes your way. Okay. And there was a bit of um, bias because on the simulator there was no slippage you got instantly filled and if it gapped against you you got stopped out usually for your two tick stop 
And if it goes your way, it goes 50 points or something. And is this, I, I presume this was trading um, treasury futures, like you're an equities trader today. We traded everything. Um, it was, we traded treasuries, um, SPY, uh, Hang Seng, FTSE, um, a lot of things, it, but basically all the instruments that were available during the UK, uh, during the Aussie session. Okay. So it was all futures though. Yeah, it was all futures. Okay. Um, and so you came in during the trainee program. Um, you know, how did you go? Did you did you make it past that? Uh, no. Towards the end, um, didn't make it past the trainee thing. It was, I guess it didn't really fit um, my personality. And then um, I moved on. Okay. And what was what was next? At that time, I was still at uni because the, the ProPix program was over um, – was over the holiday, so was over the uni holiday, so it didn't really affect my studies as much. But um, so after that, went back to uni, and then there was the trading places game. Uh, at that at that time, it was run by J.P. Morgan. Yeah, the the game was sponsored by Droga Capital, which is now Blue Lake Partners, where I work. Basically, uh, the game ran for about a month, and. Uh, the winner was supposed to get an internship at uh, J.P. Morgan. Unfortunately, it was at the, right at the heart of GFC, and uh, J.P. Morgan did not see fit to offer any internships to anyone that year. Okay. Um, so you won that competition, right? Yes. Okay. And I believe there is a bit of a story as to how you won that. <laughs> I mean, would you mind sharing that? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so the, the, the system is designed where um, you could – to be slightly realistic, where um, if you're selling a stock, you're selling at the bid, and if you're buying a stock, you're buying uh, at the offer. So you're basically crossing the spread every time. Um, I think at the time, it was also limited to the ASX 500, the All Lords, not just the ASX 300. So there were quite a few um, illiquid stocks to choose from. So um, what I found out, and also liquidity wasn't an issue either, um, you assume to be able to do your full size on the bid offer, and that was key. So what I did was um, I would find a, a micro-cap stock that doesn't do any volume whatsoever with extremely wide spread. I found a stock that had a bid of $0.02 cents and offer of $0.10. Cents. And in my PA real trading account, I would put in an offer to sell like one share at $0.03, cents, and no algorithm would come and pick it off because the stock is so illiquid. And in a trading places game, I'll buy millions and millions of shares at three cents. Once that order is filled, I'll cancel my um, my three cent offer in the real market, then put in a um, a bid at nine cents um, in the real market. So now the stock is trading nine bid, ten offered, and then I'll go into our trading places and sell millions of shares at nine cents. Um, I actually did get hit once or twice by real orders from real traders. Um, got a um, got a call from each trade after that asking was asking me what the hell are you doing, and I had to um, lie and say oh I was you know testing a couple of algos testing on small size blah 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 and they let me off the hook. That's that's hilarious. I mean, what was the uh, I mean, what's the issue really? Like, why did each trade take um, take an issue with that? I guess I was printing the stock up, printing the stock down. Like I, I did the intent to trade thing, and I guess it doesn't look good when you have a two cent stock selling trades at ten cents. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
if I understand correctly, this is kind of like winning the competition. Originally, you were meant to get a job at JP Morgan. They weren't taking anyone, but it yeah. sounds like Blue Lake took you in. Yeah, exactly. Is that correct? Um, so how come they looked at this? Did, did they know how you won the competition? Oh, they did. They did. So um, they basically called me up and said, look, we know what you're doing. Um, we're going to take away your ill-gotten gains and you're going to have to start again. So I wasn't banned from the competition, which was very generous of them. Um, I think because I was already making some good money before I stumbled upon the um, exploit. And then, um, so then I kind of had to continue trading and um, got pretty lucky here and there. And eventually I did win the competition through our skill alone, even without the benefit of my uh, ill-gotten gains. Interesting. I thought that was partly the the reason why they hired you <laughs> is <laughs> because sure they sort of, as well. <laughs> they figured it was like some kind of outside of the box thinking you were, you know, looking for, looking for a unique edge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. So what year was this when you started at Blue Lake? Uh, it was 2009. 2009. Right? Okay. Right after the, uh, basically right after the worst of the GFC and all the market, uh, all the big caps were doing placements. I was helping, um, I was helping Blue Lake um, basically fill out all the forms for the various placements, um, back office, corporate action stuff. Okay, so you weren't really doing much in the way of trading. I was given a, um, a very small account to trade within the beginning because when I joined, like they were just so busy with um, all the back office stuff. Yeah, and uh, after that, um, after that period, I was given a small book to trade, and um, I was told to focus on ADRs. And uh, index rebalancings. It was a bit of a legacy book at that time. I had no idea what any of those things were, and I kind of grew into the role um, with a bit of mentorship from the senior traders there. Okay, cool. Well, that leads us into uh, index rebalances nicely. So let's just talk about that. Um, I'm not sure if this is something you still do um, to the same extent nowadays. I know ADRs are definitely a big part of what you do. So. Um, uh, we're going to dig into ADRs, but um, on the index rebalances, can you just talk a bit about you know some of the trades and what that actually means? Sure. Um, just a brief introduction on index rebalancing. Every quarter, generally, funds need to rebalance their portfolios um, according to the S&P or the FTSE or the MISCI. Um, and based on the changes, the funds have to buy uh, large quantities and sell large quantities of stock. Um, since passive investing has grown so much in the past few years, these funds um, can have significant market impact. Um, when I first started trading them, it wasn't very well understood, even though the funds weren't very big. They were having um, outsized market impacts, and it was very lucrative. Like When I started trading them, um, I would get set two or three days before the rebalance actually happened um, to minimize my risk. Like I'll, um, I'll, like if a rebalance will be happening on Friday, Arvo, I'll be buying it Wednesday or even Thursday and then flipping out everything on a Friday. Um, but as time has progressed, it has become remarkably more efficient rather than buying what gets added to the index. You know, you had to then start predicting what would be added to the index. And then eventually it started being, you know, I had to get in a week before the predictions were released, then a month before the predictions were released. And then um, it became like a meta game. I would um, 
in the last couple of years, um, I will be trying to predict what Macquarie we're going to release in the index note. So then I'll be selling on the when Macquarie releases their note, and you know all the clients start buying those stocks. It just became too much of a um, yeah, it became too much of a meta game, and then re- the returns weren't there anymore. You probably had the same amount of returns, but it was spread over three months instead of two days. Okay. So how did you know what was likely to get added to the index? Like, you know, two days ahead of the official announcement, I guess, um, how were you able to predict what was most likely to be added? Oh, no. Um, in the beginning, um, they were announced at two weeks before the announcement. Uh, they were announced at two weeks before the rebalance event. And I would get in two days before the actual rebalance event. So I was just like reading an announcement and then, you know, copy pasting a bunch of stocks into an order blotter. But as the question goes, um, right now, um, the indices release um, guidelines and consultation notes about how they, about the mechanics of, um, yeah, about the mechanics of how these rebalances happen. So then you kind of need to do the math, go through the index universe and find um, stocks that you think uh, match the criteria match their um, guidelines and will be added to the index. For the more mechanical indices, it's um, it's not too hard, but like um, it, there could be like 20 stocks trying to fill 10 spots and a lot of them are on the knife edge. And you could be buying them um, out three months in advance and half the stocks could have, for example, bad earnings and then they will fall below the threshold and then um, they would not be added to the index and then you have to cut those. I guess slightly different question, but when you first started trading index rebalances and you were buying the stocks that were going to be added two to three days before the, you know, if it was, if they were getting added on Friday, you would be buying them on, uh, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. Why, this might sound like a silly question, but why did you think those stocks would be higher in two or three days time? Uh, I did the brief back test and um, I looked at previous index rebalancings and then they would, I would notice these uh, massive Friday spikes in the auction. Like I remember one year Northern Star gapped up 10% in the auction. Right. And everyone's asking, around, oh, what the hell's going on? Um, this was when Northern Star was like a $1 stock and kept down, kept up to um, $1.12 or something. And later on, I found out, oh, the GDX. Um, gold index was buying Northern Star, and mm-hmm. after people became very confident that you know, oh, this is a two billion dollar fund, this is a five billion dollar fund, blah blah blah. Um, there's a lot of money to be made front running these uh, uh, index additions and deletions. All right, so the ADRs. Let's get into this. This makes up a big part of your trading, from what I understand. Um, ADRs, if I'm not mistaken, is an abbreviation for American Depository Receipts. Yep. Um, I'll use ADRs interchangeably with all kinds of um, cross-listed CDIs, dual listings, and whatever. Um, to me, they just they just mean if a stock trades in both Australia and a foreign jurisdiction. Okay. So an ADR is just, yeah, a dual-listed stock, yeah? Yep, Exactly. So what's the attraction here? Um, you know, can you just give a very brief overview for kind of how they function? Um, it's essentially the same stock, but it trades in multiple jurisdictions. Um, think of it as trading the ES during 
Asian hours, trading the Eastern European hours, and then trading yes during the US hours. They all have a slightly different tinge to it, except with an um, just I'll take BHP as the premier ADR. It trades in the Australian market, and Australian fund managers have a certain view of it. It will trade in London, and the London fund managers will have a certain view of it, and it will trade in the US on the NYSE, and the US fund managers, again, will have a maybe a slightly different view of it. So you can have these um, you know, uh, wildly different valuations subscribed to the same stock. Like Australian fund managers could be extremely bullish, and the US fund managers could be extremely bearish on it. So you can have um, every night the US will get sold off, and every day in Australia, the share will get bought. And that creates um, opportunity. Are these ADRs uh, presuming that Australia is kind of like the main listing? Is that right? And then these other ones are kind of like secondary listings. Is that one way to think of it? Is that generally accurate? It's that's generally the case, but there'll be a couple of stock like a ResMed where it trades. Um, it's an Australian company, but it trades far more volume in the US than it does in Australia. Um, Unibail Romanco is another example. It trades far more volume in Europe than it does in Australia. Do you prefer to trade stocks one way or the other? Uh, what do you mean? As in, like, do you prefer to trade stocks where they do the majority of the volume, let's say, uh, locally here in Australia? Well, I kind of have a trade on both sides, but um, uh, I would try to... Um, I would I would generally try to trade the side with less volume first because that's a harder side to do more volume is. Just taking a step back, um, one interesting quirk of these of ADRs is um, they're not, it's never a live up. Like Australia is never open at the same time as the US, excluding post-market. You know, Australia is never open at the same time as Europe. So you can't directly, you know, buy, buy Australia and sell in Europe to, to, um, to up free profit. You have to take timing risk. Like you could buy in Australia and then during the European hours, something happens and the stock is significantly higher or significantly lower. And then you kind of had to make a judgment call on, on whether it's, well, it's still cheap versus Australia or it's still expensive versus Australia. Okay. I guess uh, just to my previous question, what I was sort of trying to get at is, you know, when you gave that example of, um, you know, Australian fund managers might have a certain view on BHP and then, uh, you know, fund managers in the US might have a certain view on BHP over there. Um, like, is there, if the primary listings in Australia where it does the most volume here locally, mm-hmm. you, you kind of presume that that's maybe the more efficiently or correctly priced? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, the more um, correct price. So if Australia is up 10% versus the US, I might not try to fade it. Because um, the the US would be like, well, Australia is up ten percent. We we'll just follow along. But um, if the US is up ten percent on low volume versus Australia, um, there is a, and especially if Australia does more volume. Um, the Australian fund manager going, look, those Yanks have no idea what they're talking about. This is an Australian stock. I know exactly how it should behave, and you know, I only trade up five percent or something. So you can have these massive discrepancies um, in pricing. Right. So let's let's talk about this because like you just said, it's not really I know some people kind of refer to it as an arbitrage kind of play, but like you said, there's definitely a 
the, the timing risk is a factor. So it's not really a, a true arbitrage, right? Yeah, it's um, often it's a, it's a very mixed scenario. Like, um, again, I'll take BHP as an example, right? So overnight, um, the general trade is um, if BHP is at a discount, I'll buy it. If it's at a premium, I'll sell it. Then I have to consider, okay, is the S&P up 200 points? If the S&P is up 200 points and BHP is only at a 1% premium to Australia, I'll most likely be buying it. And then have to look at, okay, what else drives BHP? Is the copper price up a lot as well? Generally, copper is positively correlated with the S&P. Um, so I tend to be, um, opt, you know, the usual scenario is that S&P is up, copper is up, uh, iron ore is up, and I'll be trying to buy BHP at a you know, 1% premium to Australia because tomorrow I think BHP will be up at least 3%. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of the nuance in the trade, right? Yeah, exactly. It gets more complicated if um, it has a lot of different leads, like uh, the S&P is up, but the miners are down and copper is down. But iron ore is up, but Rio Tinto is down in London as well. So then you get all these mixed signals about where you think BHP should be trading. And that's when you kind of widen your I guess your valuation band of what you think BHP should be, rather than saying you know BHP should be up one percent tomorrow, I'll say BHP should be up zero to two percent tomorrow. So I won't buy it if it's flat, but I'll buy it at you know maybe a one or maybe even two percent discount to Australia. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How much discretion is going into this versus how much of uh, these decisions are systematic? <laughs> I've been trying to automate this for uh, many years now <laughs> because, you know, I'm only trading this at night. And um, uh, I would like to, you know, click a button and then go to sleep. But often that's uh, quite impossible. Um, I like to think there's quite a, like I have various spreadsheets set up to take advantage of this. But often, you know, I'm looking at charts of the S&P. I'm looking at how Vale is going. I'm looking at the Aussie dollar. I'm looking at how Rio is going. I'm looking at how um, the US minus ETF is going. I'm looking at how South 32 is performing. Um, there are factors I can code into it, but there's uh, always a discretionary element. 
which makes it a bit tricky. Uh, I'd say 50% discretionary, 50% systematic. Now, the part you haven't really addressed here is, um, you know, should you, you know, if you just want to stick with this example of BHP here, um, let's say you buy BHP um, in the US overnight or overnight for us in Australia. What's the exit plan? Yep, that's also another tricky bit. Um, Often I found it's best if I just try to sell it ASAP the next day. Sell it in Australia. Yeah, sell in Australia um, as soon as possible. A lot of people are going to sort of not know how you're able to do that. Can you just explain that part of it? Several ways I can do it. If I'm buying the the US stock, if I'm buying BHP in US, um, I can A, convert the stock to Australia via my broker. So I'll buy BHP US and they'll deliver me BHP Australia and they'll take out Forex uh, for me. Or I can do it manually myself, which means um, in the end, I end up long, say, 10,000 BHP US and short 10,000 BHP Australia. And sooner or later, I have to collapse that or um, take the opposing trade. Uh, which approach is, is most common? Like, how do you decide when you're going to, you know, if you're long US, you're going to short Australia on the open or whether you're going to convert the shares um, through your broker? Um, generally, I try to do most of the DMA because um, br- if I pay, because brokerage for these things, because it's a, a fairly special transaction, um, brokerage is quite expensive. And the edge is, um, the edge obviously gets eaten up if I'm paying um, full commission on these trades every single time. There's also conversion fees on top of the brokerage. Um, so often, um, what I'll do is I'll look at my current positions. Uh, for example, currently I'm short, uh, let's say I'm short 100,000 BHP US and I'm long 100,000 BHP in Australia. If my trade is to increase that position on both sides, I might say, well, look, I don't really want to increase both sides anymore. I'll do it through a broker. But if my position would decrease both sides, it's like, oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. Um, I'll do those DMA. So then I will kind of naturally um, wind down that position. Okay, and DMA is? I'll just be hitting the market directly. Okay. Um, now, I think there might be a concrete example you can share um, for a PLS trade that you did. Yes, yeah, so that was one um, on the 24th of February, right during the uh, Ukraine fears and um, the Ukraine-Russia uh, invasion fears. Um I don't specifically remember which geopolitical headline caused it, but Australia got sold off very hard and the ES was down like 60 points. POS is not really a, a, an idea, but it does trade in Germany um, on the Frankfurt Exchange and on TradeGate. It's obviously much, much more liquid in Australia, but um, you have a bunch of European investors who love the lithium game and they invest in this thing. So, you know... When the European, so Australia was down, I think 5% or so, um, had a pretty bad day. All the lithiums got smashed um, and all the risk on names got smashed. But when Europe, Europe opened, there was like a full blown panic. You know, okay, so Europe, hold on, let me just interrupt you there. PLS was down 5% in Australia for the day. Yep. Okay, yep. So Europe, the European indices opened down about 5% as well. And PLS and a couple of the um, other European 
uh, ADRs of Australia, um, they opened down nearly 10%. So they will add an additional 5% discount to Australia. So with something like POS, it's, you know, it's a very volatile stock. So like a 5% move can be considered not too uncommon. So then it comes to a decision like, okay, what's the S&P doing? It's a spy up versus a close. Um, what's BHP doing? Um, at that time, the market looked like it was kind of bouncing. SPY was up a little bit from where Australia closed. And POS being a 5% discount was, um, yeah, it just felt incredibly cheap. Okay. So how much was it down then? In um, uh, Where does it trade? Germany. Yeah, this one's trading in Germany. So how much was it down like in Germany on the day? Down 10%. 10%, okay. So which was um, at a 5% discount to Australia. Gotcha, okay. And as the ES started rallying and Europe kind of rallied, um, there was a seller in POS. Um, and generally, um, POS doesn't do a lot of volume in Germany. So when a lot of volume comes in, I have to check and make sure there's no negative news, and someone's trying to take advantage of um, yeah, someone's taking trying to take advantage of it and try to offload it. Um, checked around everywhere, made sure there was no news, and I was you know I was happy to buy PO as a discount when the spy I think at the time was up one percent, and this continued on for a while. So I was buying everything um, the seller had to sell, and um, by the time the US had opened, I think the market was up nearly two percent. And the seller in POS got more aggressive. At this point, you know, had to take a step back and think, okay, had to double check the news. Has there been a coup? Is there something news I'm not sure about? You know, has China said something new about lithium or whatever? Had one of their partners blown up? Checked everywhere, checked Bloomberg, Reuters, Twitter, all the um, social media sites. No news. And meanwhile, the ES was still rallying and the seller was still kind of walking the stock down. Then that's kind of like when you had to make a discretionary judgment call that um, um, that the seller just wanted to get out of the sector. Had a bunch of stock in the liquid um, exchange, Germany, and he probably wasn't able to sell in Australia, so he just wanted the whole thing gone. And I was happy to, um, yeah, and I was happy to take everything he had to sell. Okay, so when you talk about just a couple things, when you talk about the seller, you make it sound like it's just one person. Um, and I, I know that's what you're getting at as well. Mm-hmm. How were you able to identify that? I keep a spreadsheet of Arvol of um, premium and discounts. Usually, um, if it's just a couple of retail trading volume is very low, the premiums and discount can get absorbed by market makers. But if there's a larger volume going through, or if the uh, the premium discount to the Aussie price is very big, I'll have a closer look. And um, also, again, I also look at liquidity on the uh, different lines. Like Germany does maybe, you know, usually 0.1% of Australian volume. So if Germany starts approaching 1% Australian volume, then it's like, oh, okay, this is you know a sign to pay attention. Something's happening here. Either someone knows something and it's dumping stock or something else. So what did PLS close down on the day in Germany? Like what percent? Um, it got down as much as 15, but in the end, um, in the end, because I was buying, I was buying as much as I could get my hands on, um, in the end it closed down 10, which was a 5% discount to Australia. Okay. So what, 
I mean, is there any reason why you were so confident that, you know, you weren't going to come in the next morning and, you know, Australian traders, investors see PLS is down 10% in Germany overnight um, and then it starts getting marked down on the open uh, in Australia? Yeah, there's, there's always that fear, but that's when, um, again, that's when um, uh, volume comes in. Like POS does um, about 30 million shares a day in Australia, right? And then, um, so, uh, and in the in Europe that night, it did about a million shares, a bit less actually. So the Australian, and so I was able to buy a bunch of POS and sell them, and I felt confident I can sell a million shares in, or so in Australia, without disturbing, you know, without pushing the prices down too much. And because POS generally does maybe about 50,000 to 100,000 shares in Germany, Australian investors do not care what's happened overnight in Germany. Gotcha. Okay. Just because the relationship is so, um, it's generally incredibly one way. Australia does something, Germany follows. Australia does something and then Germany follows to the T. Only when do you have these um, deviations that are really kind of step in. How did you uh, flatten that trade? Did you convert those shares? Yeah, I had to convert those shares because at the time I didn't know, you know, whether it was a special dividend coming or something, um, which was, we felt was just safer to convert. Okay. So when you convert the shares, you are, what, you're effectively long a million shares or so of PLS um, from the Australian, what, equivalent? Like how, how are those shares priced? It would be the German price multiplied by the um, the forex rate. So in the case of um, so in that case, I think it was a, a bit under two dollars fifty, and you'll print pre market um, as a LTXT on the ASX. Okay. So do you recall the numbers like basically you know your average buy price and then kind of the price you are able to flip those on the ASX the next day? Uh, yeah, so I bought 670,000 shares or so um, in Germany at a touch under $2.50. And then I flipped them out um, the next day at about two, I think about 275 was my average price in the end. Jesus, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, very nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great example. I love that, that you could share that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice when it works. And um, historically, I'm... Um, very afraid of getting good volume done. I think in my first and second year of trading ADRs, I was on the wrong side of a combined total, I think, of about 10 takeovers and capital raisings. <laughs> like every single time I'll be like, um, oh, cool, there's a lot of volume. Oh, cool, this stock's very cheap. Next day it's like, ah, capital raising. Oh, I remember um, when Bannerman got taken over by, um, or attempted takeover by, um, I think it was Handlong um, from China. So on the Friday night before the takeover, the stock was up 10% um, in Canada while the Dow was down 1,000 points. I remember that very clearly. I'm thinking, who is this loser buying Bannerman up 10%? You know, Paladin was down 5 all these other Uranium's down 5 While this clown is buying stock, I'm going to short as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on Monday, it became all clear. No good, no good. <laughs> yeah, it did teach me to be a bit more cautious when I'm getting volume, especially volume at great prices. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about this, like, 
you know, I was shorting as much as I could or in this PLS example, I was buying as much as I could. Um, I mean, how are you thinking about size and thinking about your risk? Um, I'm, I'm definitely in a camp that when you have an A-plus trade, you should do uh, exponentially more size, not linear more, linearly more size than your B trades or your, even your C trades because that is you know, the point of having these A-plus trades. And with me, especially when I trade these ADRs, um, I'm often like 50 or 60% off the volume. Like sometimes, like sometimes I'm 100%. Like in, P, in a PLS example, I think I was like 60, 70% off the volume, right? Because I don't want to share my AP- Of what volume? Of the total volume. On Germany? Yeah. Okay. It was just me and the other guy transacting with a couple of retail trades here and there. Because like when I have an A plus trade, I'm gonna make that I felt very confident in. You know, I'm gonna be an absolute pig about it. Generally, you know, if you do a breakout trade, you're like, yeah, it'll probably work out. You know, you have I, you know, a 55% confidence. You know, or you, or or even lower. It's like breakouts tend to work or whatever. Or you have a technical system and you have 60% stats if you're very very lucky. But with um, these more nuanced trades you can have a much higher confidence level. Like I'll give an example of um, if Apple trades at a dollar the next day, I'll have 100% confidence in buying it, assuming you know nothing fundamental has changed. It's just a bad print or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, rather than Apple being down 99%, what if it was only down you know, 5%? Like I'll be pretty confident in buying it as long as um, if Apple trades in, for example, Argentina, and then there's some fund who's, you know, there's some funds blow and they're just selling everything as a fire sale. It's exactly the same scenario. You want to buy in a weird random market that no one else is looking at. Yeah, these uh, this example you gave on PLS, um, that sounds like it was kind of not an anomaly, but it was kind of quite an extreme case. Yeah. I, obviously, you don't have those types of scenarios, you know, every night. No. So, I mean, what's it like, like how often do these kind of things roll around and what's kind of a, like, what are you normally looking for? Like what sort of uh, discount or, or are you looking to buy at or premium are you looking to short at? Usually about, so on a regular night, you'll be, you know, one or 2%, um, depends how volatile the market is. Um, right now, markets are pretty volatile, so you can have, um, you can have much more panic going on, especially when the S&P moves 100 points or something. You can have people who just throw in a the towel. They just want to get out of position. And then there can be some like truly massive premiums and discounts. Normally, like I would say I'll get one of these, um, you know, swing for the fence or scenarios one for a m- once a month. Okay. Pro- like, But it will be, you have a lot of clustering. Like I would have maybe 10 of them, uh, 10 of them or maybe even more in February. And then, None in the past three months. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, a factor of the market conditions, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like when the volatility is low, no one's panic selling out their, you know, their small cap and liquid stock on a foreign exchange. If someone's listening to this and they're just a, a self directed retail trader, I mean, is this the type of trade that they could, that would be worthwhile exploring for them? Or, you know, you obviously have, um, 
you know, some advantages of the, um, you know, with brokers and access and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like how feasible is this or, or realistic is it for, um, you know, a, a at-home trader to, to replicate this to a certain extent? I think it's extremely hard to replicate, but it doesn't mean that um, you can't take advantage of you can't take advantage of it. The infrastructure required for this is pretty onerous to set up, and like even as an institutional trader, it's a lot of work. But um, as a retail trader, you can take advantage of um, if you see, you know, if you're a retail trader trading BHP, you can look at what. BHP did overnight. Is trading at a premium? Is trading at a discount? You know, was BHP up five percent overnight, and then maybe adjust your price accordingly. And then, for example, we have um, if you know if you see um, POS trade at a massive discount in Germany overnight, and a lot of shares get done, you can kind of assume someone has bought a lot of shares, and that someone needs to offload those shares ne- the next day. And you can kind of say, oh, okay, there could be some selling in POS today. If we just move on from this now, there's one other area I'd like to get in with you. And that is, I guess, talking about how you think about, because obviously what we've spoken about here is just kind of a couple of your plays, right? A mm-hmm. couple different strategies that you implement. And the thing which is so interesting about you, James, is that the strategies that you trade and the edges which you exploit, they're quite unique. Yeah. And they're more or less sort of market neutral to a certain extent. And if they're not unique, they're certainly strategies which uh, a lot of retail don't necessarily have exposure to or aren't familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I'd just be interested to kind of ask you a bit more about how you think about finding alpha and how you actually think about uh, getting an edge and I know there's an acronym that you uh, use um, so I was maybe gonna just ask you to if you'd like to step through that sure just briefly I think if you're trading the same way as everyone else you know you're gonna get average results unless you are like a prodigy or something it's much easier to compete in places where other people don't won't or can't um, if you're trading in your own niche, um, you're much more likely to succeed because you're just fa- simply facing less competition. Um, I stole this from um, Angus Cameron at Liminal Capital, um, who had a who explains Edge with a, a very nice acronym. Uh, it's Asia, and like all good acronyms, it has uh, several letters repeated. <laughs> so the acronym stands for Access, Speed, Information, and Analytics. So access, what I mean by that is um, you have access to other markets. For me, it's ADRs, right? I get to trade in the German market. I get to buy um, buy POS in Germany. I get to buy Oceanic Gold in Canada, right? So this is an edge in itself. Um, it could also be um, access to liquidity where no one else can get. It could be placements. It could be um, IPOs. It could be favorable treatment in uh, special crossings. So access itself could be edge. There could be funds um, that are making money off their broker relationship, just doing IPO after IPO after IPO. Next one, speed. Pretty self-explanatory is just reaction to info, 
like maybe it could be order speed, maybe um, you're always um, scanning uh, Trader News or Squawk Box or Bloomberg Reuters and you know you always see the latest headline first and then you'll be the first one to smash um, an order in when everyone else is still reacting. Uh, next one I want to talk about is information. Like uh, information as in it could be data, news, opinion or flow. Um, any kind of information that no one else has. It's slightly related to speed because information kind of diffuses very quickly into the market. Like it could be um, a broker upgrade or downgrade that you just heard straight from the analyst. And it could be, um, you know, like something that only you know about because it's your niche. Like an index rebouncing or... Um, something like an intraday ETF flow mechanics that you're very familiar with and the rest of the market doesn't know about. And the final one is analytics. It's a little bit like information, but this is, um, I guess this is your own set of, um, your own set of understanding, like how you think things will react to um, events. Like it could be um, as simple as, like you can outsource, like you could, you know, an event can happen and you call the analyst in the stock and they will give you a column whether this is bearish, bullish, whether it's priced in or not. Um, it could be um, being prepared for an event. Like, for example, um, last year when um, there was talk of an ETF um, going through for Bitcoin, um, those who did all the prep work and had set up all the alerts on various news wires were able to buy um were able to buy Bitcoin instantly when the news hit the wires, while everyone else was scrambling to see um is this news legit? Which wire did it come from? What will it mean for the ETFs? You know, will this have second order effects? So pre-gaming can be a source of like, you know, analytics as well, because you have pre-done all the analytics where everyone else is still thinking of the questions that you have answered months ago. I like that point. Pre-gaming. Can you talk about, you know, back testing and or, or not just back testing, but just general testing of your system to know whether an edge exists or not? Um, is that something you do much of? You know, obviously, some of these things that you talk about here um, and, you know, as, as still a discretionary trader, even though some aspects are systematic, discretionary trades can be quite hard to, you know, test rigorously. But what kind of testing do you do? I guess this kind of ties into analytics a little bit. Basically, any idea, any correlation or relationship. A lot of trading has these rules that people take for granted that actually don't really hold true. And a lot of it um, are seemingly like um, common sense rules that might not actually hold water. Um, an example I'll give is... Um, you see gold go up, right, and expect gold stocks to go up. It makes sense in theory because um, gold miners produce gold. They, you know, then they sell the gold. If the gold price is up, they make more money. But if you test the performance of various gold stocks against gold itself, you might find out that, oh, actually, some stocks don't actually react really well to a gold price. Um, it could be because they're hedged or something. Right, or it could be because um, uh, like a whole variety of um, different reasons. Like for example, Australian gold stocks might actually be performing 
um, worse because of the Aussie dollar component. Like gold could be up, but the Aussie dollar could be up more, meaning the gold price is actually down in Aussie dollars. And these Aussie denominated miners are actually selling gold at um, less than what they did before the move. A lot of these um, seemingly, I guess, basic rules in trading, um, yeah, I think people need to like cast a closer eye on them um, because a lot of them, is like, like they simply don't work. Can you speak or maybe just give some guidance to, let's say, again, a self-directed retail trader at home mm-hmm. who's maybe been at this a couple years, maybe still trying to find their groove, feeling a little bit lost, um, you know, trying to find some of these more uh, obscure edges that, you know, sort of take a page out of your book. Obviously, they don't have the same access that you do. Um, but like, is there any guidance you could give to someone in that position for where they might be able to, you know, seek out a little bit of alpha? Uh, playbook everything. And then once you playbook something, try to do a backtest if you can. It's just screen time in the market. You notice something weird that's going on and then it's just all pattern recognition. Does this thing happen and again and again? If so, maybe do a backtest on it. Um, for example, if like again going back to the previous point, um, most traders um, most traders that follow um, most day traders, right? They'll buy a stock during the day and then want to be out before the close. Now, if every single trader does that, that implies the open of stocks will always be elevated, and the close of stocks will always be depressed. So maybe if you run the backtest on it, you'll find that um, if you hold stocks overnight and sell them the next morning, sure, you're at risk of gaps, but over the long term, maybe you'll be, um, you'll be able to make 10% more every year if rather than holding, selling at the close, you always sell the next morning. Stuff like that, stuff, anything you see that um, you feel is a bit, oh, this is strange. I wonder if... Um, this is a pattern or it's just a um, like a, 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 a random scenario that might never happen again. If you keep recording it, testing it and seeing, you know, if something like this can happen again or has happened in similar markets, you establish kind of like a, a mental model of how markets operate. And if you backtest everything and all these assumptions about the market, you can, I think, form a very good understanding of how, how markets actually operate. Yeah, I love that answer. And I love that you said, if you see something that looks a little bit weird, I think that's actually really key. So just as we wrap things up here and sort of move towards the end of our discussion, there is one more topic which I would like to bring up and that's your uh, more recent sort of involvements in crypto. Like what's the attraction there? I first traded crypto, I think in 2015. Didn't really understand what's going on. Traded a bit as a retail, you know, got in, got out. Um, the environment wasn't very friendly for trading. The commissions were huge, spreads were huge. Um, it's only recently I've kind of started to recognize that um, despite what you believe what um, crypto is or what it is in a way it can do, it's like a fantastic trading environment. 
you're always training against retail rather than institutions. Like there are institutions coming in, but the um, you tend to not face the same kind of competition as you do in equities. And um, it kind of goes back to the previous part. Where, like, if you can find a niche that isn't crowded, you should definitely explore that niche. If you're always trading in an environment where you have minimal competition, where like um, you're not, you know, you're not competing against ten other traders to fight for the, you know, the best price to fight for the best tick, and then the flushes because everyone, the thing flushes because everyone is in the same crowded trade. It's a great place to be. It's kind of like um, you know, you could be the best poker player. Uh, in your town or in your city, but then poker has been shrinking in the past couple of years, and you know eventually start pay, you know all the easy opponents, so to speak, have left the game, and eventually start playing against harder and harder opponents, and you have to um, work very very hard for a smaller slice of the pie, or just to keep you know keep standing still. If the pie is growing exponentially and all this dumb money is coming in. And all institutions are coming in, you can get away with just lazing around and just doing, um, or maybe not specifically lazing around, but you can get away doing very little, or even applying what you already know. So what you're saying is crypto is uh, a lot, um, yeah. lot more inefficient than stocks. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's a lot more inefficient than stocks. Um, an example I don't mind sharing because this edge will be gone soon. Is um, uh, Ethereum tends to be a proxy. Uh, yeah, it tends to be a proxy of the NASDAQ. And um, six months ago, um, it will, during like big moves in the NASDAQ, it will lag NASDAQ by like minutes. It was absolutely ridiculous. Now, especially recently in the past couple of months, it will still lag the NASDAQ by a couple of seconds, which anyone who trades futures knows is a massive advantage. Like, especially when it's a big inflation print. Um, and the futures move, the ES moves, the NASDAQ moves, crypto will move a couple of seconds um, behind all that. There's been a lot of, um, I've definitely seen a lot of um, ARBs have come in to try to reduce that to even lower and lower speeds, but there's still like a little bit of time left. I'm pretty sure in three months or whatever, like this entire thing will be gone. And then, you know, have to move on to some other source of alpha. Yeah. See, see those, that, that sort of example is like exactly why I was so keen to have you on the podcast. Like just <laughs> those sort of unique little um, little edges. How did you uncover that? Like how did you spot that? How did you spot that weird little thing? <laughs> I, I was waiting for I was waiting for the inflation print, and then um, saw the print. You know, inflation higher than expected. Markets get smashed. And then I realized, I was like, oh my God, I'm long XYZ coins. And it's like, and then I log in to check them. I was like, oh, it hasn't moved yet. And then it started moving. I'm like, oh my God, cut, cut, <laughs> like D- DMA, um, just cut these things. And then and I see it start moving. I was like, what the hell is going on? And I look back over the past and say, oh my God, there used to be a, you know, a five minute delay and it became one minute and then it became, you know, a couple of seconds. Yeah, and by the time this comes out, it'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Jump crypto will be all over it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to wrap this up here, James, I know that you're actually looking to hire somebody. Do you want to just give a little bit of information about who you're looking for, who should apply, how to apply, etc.? 
I've been trading ADRs for probably a decade now, and I would like to sleep one day. <laughs> um, and because I'm always tra- up at night trading the US, um, it's a lot of fun, but I often can't keep track of everything that goes on, especially if I have to keep track of what's going on in Europe, keep track of everything that's going on um, in Australia as well. So I'm looking at someone to um, basically um, start off as a support trader for me in the US, um, tell me what's going on, and may eventually start placing trades for me as well. Okay. And this would be someone who lives in the US, right? Yeah. Um, I did because, yeah, I wanted someone in the US because I wanted this to be a long term position. Um, I understand full well what happens if you stay up every night trying to do everything. Um, you, you get burnt out very quickly or you stop caring when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. It's just not a long-term solution to have someone in Australia. <laughs> That's something I was going to ask you earlier, actually. It's like, how do you monitor all this? Like, you've got the Australian market during the day, and then US, or what, Europe, I guess, is, what, early evening? Yeah. Um, and then US, like, right through to the morning. Like, how do you, how do you manage it all at the moment? Um, it's bursts of activity and lots of, I guess, do nothing in between. So I do stay up fairly late to trade it. Um, so it's quite taxing in that sense. But then I enjoy it immensely, um, watching the markets, figuring stuff out. And um, I guess it's like the ultimate game. Yeah. So, okay. So um, just on the person you're looking for, like who, you know, what sort of levels of experience or anything like that? Any more details you'd like to share? Yeah, so someone ideally with good uh, US microstructure uh, experience. Um, ADR experience not essential because it is quite a niche field. Um, someone who's decent at short-term trading and understand the intraday drivers of a stock. Um, I'll, I'll make a Google um, Forms sheet with a couple of the uh, specifications. Okay. Um, all right, so that's probably the best way to apply um, is just through the Google form. Yeah, yeah, that would be best. Well, I will set up a link. I'll, I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. How about that? Sounds good. Folks listening, if you'd like to get that link, go to chatwithtraders.com slash 231 as this will be episode 231 and you'll find a link there in the show notes. Awesome. Cool. All right, James. Well, I just want to say I'm so glad we could uh, have this conversation. It's great to have finally had you on the podcast. You know, it's been in the back of my mind to reach out to you for a long time. And anyway, I'm glad we could uh, make it happen. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.